I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand, has much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Coming to you from New Hampshire, the land of eternal politics, I can assure you that the barrage of presidential wannabes in the 2020 electoral circus is well underway. Of course, interest is high, given the beyond belief, evil, and downright anti-democracy actions of the current president. There's more agreement than ever that the number one goal which must be achieved is his removal. And to achieve that, there's recognition that the Democratic presidential nominee is unlikely to be all we want or need. But as our guest today, Paul Street, argues, there is power brewing more powerful and meaningful than simply who becomes the next titular head of state and government. Today, we're going to discuss his Truth Dig and Counterpunch article titled Beyond the 2020 Electoral Circus, A Workers' Rebellion is Brewing. Paul Street, thanks for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Uh, Thanks, Bert. Hey. Paul Street is an independent progressive policy researcher, award-winning journalist, historian, and author and speaker based in Iowa City, Iowa, and Chicago, Illinois. He's the author of seven books to date, Empire and Inequality, America and the World Since 9-11, Segregated Schools, Educational Apartheid in the Post-Civil Rights Era, Racial Oppression in the Global Metropolis, Living Black Chicago History, Barack Obama and the Future of American Politics, The Empire's New Clothes, (laughs) I like that, Barack Obama in the Real World of Power, Crashing the Tea Party, Mass Media and the Campaign to Remake American Politics, and They Rule, the 1% versus Democracy. Uh, Paul Street writes regularly for Truth Dig and Counterpunch. Well, again, thanks for being with us. And being the celebrity-focused culture that we are here in America, the quadrennial presidential contest gets all the attention. And many Americans do limit their uh, participation to this big-time event. What is the danger and error of citizens putting all their eggs, hoping for transformative change, into that one person, that one basket? There's a um, number of types of politics that we need to focus on in this country, as in other countries. Um, And what we do for two minutes um, in a voting booth, once every uh, four years, what is that, once every 1,460 days, which is our constitutionally appointed, highly time-staggered moment of input in which we get to generally choose between two or three candidates uh, that have already been selected in advance for us, by those who have the money to pay pay for viable campaigns. Um, If you pour all your energies into that definition of politics and just say that's politics and that's all the politics there is, so that's pretty um, that's pretty lame. Uh, That's pretty uh, that's pretty uh, um, uh, um, pretty much of a surrender. Uh, You know, I think it's I think elections matter. I think I think. 
you know, you always want somebody uh, not quite as awful as Ronald Reagan, not someone quite as awful as uh, George W. Bush, certainly not someone quite as awful as uh, the orange one, uh, Donald Trump, who's kind of a creeping fascist. But now there's also the other politics beneath and beyond that cycle. Uh, what do we do after those two minutes in those voting booths? You know, Howard Zinn used to write very eloquently about the politics of who's sitting in the streets, not just who's sitting in the suites or sitting in um, sitting in the White House. And uh, and 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 again and again and again, uh, we see people just getting sort of mobilized, but uh, around the electoral obsession the candidate obsession, but getting demobilized about everything else that matters. And a lot of change, Most probably most of the progressive change that we've seen in the 19th, 20th, and 21st centuries is really about that other, that, that, that in the streets, that in the workplace, that direct action type of politics yes. beyond the electoral politics. And furthermore, on those rare and unusual occasions, if and when we ever do get uh, and actually sort of people's candidate in or a progressive candidate in who actually sort of means it uh, uh, about doing some good mm. things. Uh, their victories tend to not mean a whole heck of a lot unless we have uh, capacity for uh, for extra electoral uh, uh, um, um, in the streets, in the workplaces, types of politics to uh, defend them uh, and at the same time to push them forward uh, against the lords of capital yeah. and right-wing reaction who will always be pressuring them uh, and, 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 and trying to get them to contain everything within uh, parameters that are safe to the established uh, oppression structure. <laughs> We are seeing that for sure in the 2020 election about, you know, which candidates the powers that be in Wall Street will be okay with. You know, they can mouth a few words, but who are they okay with? Who are they afraid of? And what you're talking about reminds me of a meeting that A. Philip Randolph, who was head of the uh, Brotherhood of Pullman Car Workers, uh, met with Franklin Roosevelt about uh, segregation and fairness for, for black people. And the president said something like, I don't remember the exact words, of course, uh, that I'm with you, I agree with you, I want to help you, now go out and make me do it. Yeah. And what he meant yeah. by take the streets. Go ahead. Right. Yeah, no, no, that's, uh, that's absolutely right. And in those moments when, you, when we have seen uh, halfway decent things happen in American history, such as... Uh, the better aspects of the New Deals, particularly the Second New Deal, like the Social Security Act and the Wagner Act, which re-legalized union, which legalized union organizing in this country, it needs to be re-legalized now. Yeah, true. Uh, um, that stuff happened in part because there was thunder on the left and out there in the streets and also in the workplaces and on the shop floors before Roosevelt's sort of uh, somewhat left cor uh, uh, turn. In '35, there have been mass strikes across this country. In '34, there was a there was a nationwide there was a Teamster strike up in Minneapolis. There were uh, there was a, a significant rank and file working class activity, uh, um, you know. And and um, and one could say much the same thing about the uh, civil rights victories, which were attained, which were achieved in the mid uh, 1960s. They were unthinkable yeah. without the direct moral pressure. Uh, of uh, activists like Dr. Martin Luther King, for example, and and the folks in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, yep. and the Freedom Riders, and all of that. Those are activists who thought beyond 
uh, just the election cycle uh, and thought about uh, exercising people's pressure, public pressure, uh, uh, every day. You know, sort of Mario Savio's line. Yeah. Sometimes the workings of the machine become so sickening that you have to put your body on the lines, yes. you know, and make it stop. So there's that kind of politics, too. If you can have people in there who can respond to it and then have a dialectic between them, uh, you can achieve some things sometimes. Yes, that's the way political change happens. And it's interesting to me how since the uh, the Vietnam War days when you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people did take to the streets. Somehow a lot of people have come to believe we are powerless. If we go out in the streets, it doesn't mean anything. The people who actually have the power know that it does mean something and that that's the only way they react is if there's pressure, if you make it safe for them to act, if they need to do that by following the people on the streets. We've we've kind of forgotten that we have power. They wanted to, to convince us we're powerless and a lot of people think we are. Well, you know, uh, <clears throat> one thing that the mass mobilizations around the Vietnam War did, and I agree with you, is it convinced the power elite of this country to never again have a citizen, a citizen army, uh, and 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 sure. never and, and and essentially got rid of the draft. And and I think uh, I, I think people feel sort of. Uh, 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 it, it's hard to find the leverage points sometimes on protesting the American empire because so few people actually serve in it anymore. Yes. It's sort of hard to, to yes. get at the nuts and bolts of how it works. Um, you know, uh, the, 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 there are mass mobilizations that, that have a real impact and sometimes even small, that, that is very small, and sometimes even smaller types of mobilizations that have an impact that's very big. Now, for example... After Trump was elected, and you had these gigantic outpourings yes. uh, of people in, in the women's marches, um, and they might have seemed to be like meaningful sort of direct action of some kind, but all they really were was a they were they were still completely hooked off the election cycle. They were all just sort of protests of a fait accompli, which was the fact that that's right mm -hmm. under our absurd, preposterous electoral college system, this right wing lunatic actually was now the president of the United States. And it really didn't go anywhere. It wasn't really direct action. It was just sort of venting off steam and all yes, of that yes. kind of business. Uh, that's too harsh. I'm, I'm sure someone could call in and explain to me how that's too harsh. But I think there's something to be said for, for, for kind of uh, negative take on it. On the other hand, uh, a few weeks ago, when a relatively small, smart cadre of uh, airport-related workers and air uh -huh. controllers mm -hmm. realized, uh, um, and I was just waiting for this to happen, and I think a lot of us were, that they had a lot of power, actually, in, in terms of idling capital and uh, slowing down uh, air travel in this country, that they just weren't going to take it anymore. You know, that this, this notion that air controllers who, who have jobs that are so stressful that if they make one mistake, 600 people can die in an instant, right? And that they're supposed to come in and do this incredibly stressful, difficult job while also working second and third jobs, you know, driving Uber and, and, and worrying about whether they, they're, they're going to be able to meet their rent checks or buy food next week, that that was just absurd. Uh, and guess what? They started calling in, and the airplanes started jamming up at LaGuardia, and it was kind of like the Flint sit-down strike in 1936-1937, obviously not a direct analogy, but they discovered their capacity to disrupt the flow um, uh, uh, of business as usual. 
And lo and behold, the the, the shutdown was called off, called off within a day. Wasn't yep. that interesting? They had bargaining power at, at the workplace level. Interesting. Idling capital. They that freaks them out, and that's exactly what happened with the with the uh, airplane workers and the pa- uh, mm-hmm. Patco. It used to be Patco, not Patco anymore. <laughs> Reagan did away with them, but the uh, air traffic controllers and that- even yeah, even without the right to strike, you can have a, you can have a call in. Yep. And those planes start jamming up, and all of a sudden, middle and upper class people can't fly around, and business is disturbed. And and and, and absolutely right. Well, the thirties, a, a bunch of semi-skilled workers in a body plant in yes. uh, somewhere in upstate Michigan in Flint were able to cripple the whole total operations of the integrated General Motors empire. It was the biggest corporation that the world had ever seen at yes. that time, and it was yes. and it was a, a functionally disabled. Um, by, uh, by by uh, uh, a direct action in, in the workplace, idling capital. And then that became a, a fad in the United States in 1936 and 1937. There were thousands of sit-down strikes. Yeah. Uh, and that's part of why collective bargaining happened. As people discovered that power on the shop floor, they realized it had to be contained. And we got the big steel worker and the auto worker and the packing house worker collective bargaining agreements, which uh, paid off to some extent, for working-class people, but we're also all very much about containing that elemental power that people have to idle capital. Well, unions used to be able to do that. Unions used to be really powerful. The Democratic Party under the Clintons uh, and the rightward turn in the 1990s turned their back on the unions, and, and the unions haven't been so strong. So what... what, what oh, absolutely. And, you know, that's, the, that's my leading uh, underestimated factor in the rightward turn of American politics, that... that just so too rarely gets mentioned that we're down now. I was born into America where 40% of the United States workforce was um, was in the union. It had union density rate of 40%, mm-hmm. and I believe we're down to less than 10% now, uh, closer to 6 or 7% in the private sector. That's just astonishing, and it's a big part of how, why, and how and why we've moved so far to the right. Well, I wonder what we can do about that. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and we're talking about real democracy here with our guest, Paul Street, uh, who's written an article called Beyond the 2020 Electoral Circus, A Workers' Rebellion is Brewing. I like that sense of optimism. And as we all know, Bernie Sanders has been a consistent fighter for transformative change really since the late 60s. Uh, he's always done it. I do believe he would have become president had it not been for the rigging of the nominating process by the capital interests in the DNC. Your article cites Noam Chomsky warning about the unrealistic expectations from a Bernie Sanders presidency. And it goes to the heart of your article. I wonder if you could talk about that, please. Well, you know, it, it's a very, I, I was sort of surprised by um, this Chomsky quote that I ran across from an interview he did last year, uh, because Chomsky sort of um, surprised a lot of folks uh, on the so-called hard left by the extent to which he um, he really sort of embraced the Sanders development. I think, you know, for, for some pretty understandable and good reasons, a lot of us were kind of surprised by that. Uh, because Sanders has been very sort of circumspect and uh, and standoffish about the Pentagon budget. Uh, that's changing a little bit lately, but still, 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 sort of, uh, uh, Bernie still kind of respects that that kind of third rail in American politics, which is is mm. that that makes politicians uh, who ought to know better, but nonetheless stand back from really going after 
uh, the the the, um, the Pentagon system yeah. and the incredible amount of money that, that we that we give to it. It's more than fifty seven percent of discretionary spending, and it's going to be very hard to have a Green New Deal and free college tuition and single payer health insurance and all of those kinds of things unless we take really really big chunks out of that giant defense budget. And and Chomsky's always kind of thought that too. He sort of agreed with me when I say something like that. Yet he really got sort of um, behind the Sanders thing. Uh, for some very good reasons. Uh, Sanders was advocating uh, programs that we drastically and urgently need, like green jobs programs, like a uh, serious progressive taxation. I mean, we've got three yes. people in the country who own as much wealth now as the bottom half of the country, and like, of yeah. course, and perhaps above all, single-payer health and insurance and all of that. And he was doing this with no corporate support at all. No financial wealth. This guy came incredibly tantalizingly close to becoming a major party nominee, yeah. almost completely on the basis of small, middle, and working class donations. That was extraordinary. So Chomsky says that in this interview. He praises Sanders for that in this interview we did last year. But then he points out that if the guy had gotten in, right, uh, it's very questionable whether he could have gotten anything uh, done. Uh, but suppose he'd been elected, Chomsky said. He couldn't have done a thing. That strikes me as rather harsh, but okay. He couldn't have done a thing. Nobody in Congress, no governors, no legislatures, none of the big economic powers, uh, which have an enormous effect on policy. They'll all be against him, all opposed to him. And this is the line that really struck me from Chomsky. In order for him to do anything, he would have to have a substantial functioning party apparatus, which would have to grow from the grassroots. It would have to be locally organized. It would have to operate at all local levels, state levels, Congress, the bureaucracy. You have to build the whole system from the bottom. So even if he'd snuck through, and I agree with you, if he somehow could have snuck past the corporate rigors in the Democratic Party, if, if Hillary had had a bigger scandal than the emails thing, mm -hmm. You know, they had just undone her, and he had been the nominee, which is not completely unfeasible. You know, yeah, it's not completely unimaginable. He may very well have 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 defeated Trump by mobilizing enough working class votes in those fifteen battleground states. I think I think Sanders would have won. All the one on one matchup polls say that, yeah. but that he would have been been there, and it could have in some ways almost have been a disaster. Hmm. Because you pour, we pour all of our energy into the electoral politics, right. and we don't have that functioning grassroots, uh, 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 in the streets movement um, that is required to defend and push forward the candidates that we might prefer once they get in. If that makes any sense. Yeah, and to continue the uh, the, the energy going there, and that's you know, I, I wonder. I mean, there was tremendous energy with the Bernie Sanders campaign. I think even he was surprised how much it inspired young people, lots and lots of young people. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it, it was an audience much wider than the Democratic base of the last 30 years or so. What can we deduce and infer about that energy going forward? What are your thoughts on that? There's something up with the millennials, and particularly 18 to 29-year-olds. I covered the Iowa caucus in... Uh, in uh, in 2016, and it was in Iowa City, and I was in one caucus that was the older uh, uh, sort of establishment, Clinton, Obama, Democrats type, tenured professors, retired folks, living in really nice houses on sort of the uh, north side of Iowa City. And it was a uh, it was a Clinton caucus. It was about 50-50, but it was a Clinton caucus. And I, I walked over to another caucus in the same high school um, that represented the district closer to the campus, and it was full of young people. Uh, and by the way, it's full of young women. 
uh, um, this whole gender thing that the Clinton people did against the Bernie, calling them all Bernie bros and implying that they were sexist, mm. was very interesting. You should have seen the Iowa caucuses that, that I saw, and, and this one in particular, which is full of excited young women. I said, all these young people, um, and this was Iowa City, so these were college students. This is a five, Iowa was a fairly decent school, Big Ten campus, and they know they're going into a, a, a um, low-wage, low-benefit job market uh, um, shaped by corporate abandonment and, and, mm. and, and, and neoliberal regression. They're uh, painfully aware of an ecological crisis that now is so grave that a lot of them are wondering if they want to have kids at all, right? When you read about how there might not be an Antarctic by 2050 and that the Amazon could be going away, you know, uh, um, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a different system and a different world that they're going into. And now millennials, uh, 18 to 29-year-olds right. in, in polls in the last few years, have a more favorable response to the word socialism. Yes, they do. They did to the word capitalism. They don't freak out when they hear Trump somebody call, Trump calls somebody a socialist. I was just talking to a bunch of students today in that age group. And, you know, Trump went crazy last night, uh, screaming against socialism and, you know, calling neoliberal corporate centrist Democrats socialists. <laughs> Does that scare you off about them? And they'll not at all. You know, I mean, um, you know, they're not talking about seizing the means of production. They're just talking about, wow. you know, decent things like uh, reducing the wealth inequality in this country and giving everybody health care uh, coverage. Of course, the free college tuition thing, as you might imagine, that went pretty far oh, yeah. for 18 to 29-year-olds. They'd like to hear about that. So I wonder what happens. So there's something going on with those, with those young kids. That's one reason I decided to te- uh, teach a few classes these days. I wanted to see what these kids are about, and it's, it's, it's pretty inspiring. Yeah, it is inspiring. It's great to see uh, young people these days. And there is that energy there. And I think, you know, now there's this like 30 people running for president, if not more. (laughs) You know, it's really diffuse. And and who are they going to go? I mean, Bernie, I think, is going to run again. But will he capture that? But again, we're talking about this is beyond the titular head of government, head of state. This is beyond presidential. We're talking about, as your article says, beyond the 2020 electoral circus. A workers' rebellion is brewing. And there has been populism, real populism in America. You know, it's kind of forgotten about. But recently on this show, I was honored to have prairie populist, former senator, 1976 presidential candidate, and head of the DNC, I might add, Fred Harris from Deep Red, Oklahoma. He talked about the status of populism in the 21st century. Now, your article, Paul, cites the late author Christopher Hitchens talking about the manipulation of populism by elitism. We all know that's true. There are many examples of that going back to 1930s Germany, all the way through Trump's false populism. What do you see as progressive populism's potential for transformational change? And how does how might that intersect with what you see as a workers' rebellion? Well, there are definitely, you know, the workers' rebellion, there is a... Um, <clears throat> There's an increase of labor activism. Uh, public sector unions are um, actually expanding their membership. They, everyone expected that they were going to decline their membership. They've been expect they've been expanding. Been a number of successful teachers strikes, most recently in, in Los Angeles. Uh, I write in my article about a number of sort of uh, unreported labor actions that are going on in the city of Chicago right now, including a very impressive campaign against a charter school, a, 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 a technically Latino charter school that's actually run by a corporate CEO who's paying his workers like half of what the Chicago public teachers are, are actually making. Um, 
You know, there's there's all kinds of that kind of stuff going on. Uh, now, whether it's going to translate into the 2020 presidential campaign uh, is hard to say. We do have a lot of that Christopher Hitchens manipulation going on right now. Uh, um, Sanders, I'm I'm a little skeptical about whether he's going to have the kind of chances. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, in 2020 that he had in 2015, 2016, for uh, for a few reasons, one of which is Hillary, the Hillary machine, just scared off everybody uh, that time except Bernie, and then he became the sort of lightning rod of the non-Hillary, the progressive populist, anti-Hillary or non-Hillary candidate. This time there's so many of them right. in there and they've and a lot of these candidates had looked at how close right. Sanders had True. came. They have also looked at this public opinion data, which shows that millennials and more to the point, all of the population is actually left of center, progressive populist in many ways on things like green jobs, on things like progressive yes. taxation, and certainly on health care yep. and all of that. And so they're stealing Sanders's um, rhetoric. Uh, to no small extent, they're applying Sanders' rhetoric, you know, and and and, and it's never clear whether they actually mean it. Right. But one of the great, I, I think, registers or one of the great indicators or criterion for whether they mean it or not is um, are they following his fundraising uh, 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 platform, right. which was small donors right. and uh, <clears throat> working class and middle class donors only and no corporate money. If they're not. They're probably playing the Christopher Hitchens game mm. of the manipulation of, of populism. If they do follow that, it may something different. I'm not holding my breath for anybody other than Sanders uh, uh, to really actually sincerely run uh, as a progressive populist this time. Um, and I'm afraid between the number of candidates, and this time the corporate media which sort of defines what is allegedly the left, and I hear I'm referring particularly to MSNBC, but also the more liberal talk show hosts on CNN, seem to be kind of loaded for bear, or maybe I should say loaded for burn this time. <laughs> and they're sort of picking and sniping at both him and Alexandria uh, Ocasio-Cortez, you know, in calling uh, a real progressive populist agenda, uh, unrealistic and unpragmatic and unsustainable and something we couldn't pay for, and all of that kind of stuff. So I'm a little leery about whether it's really going to translate into the 2020 circus, except in a manipulative and a, and a cynical kind of way. And, and on the other hand, I'm, I'm not, you know, and, and I'm not sure that... Um, I'm not sure that it's going to matter all that much because I think we're going to be we're going to be looking at the progressive populist energy sort of migrating more and more into a politics that isn't just about the tit- as you say the right. titular head of state and the quadrennial extravaganza, but it is about building uh, uh, movements in the streets, uh, the expansion of the labor movement, uh, the connecting between the labor movement and the community on a whole bunch of issues. I think we need to build, like Chomsky said locally yes. up and out from there. I think 2020 sort of gone in many ways for progressive populists. I mm. think everybody mm. wants to get rid of Trump, and it's completely understandable, and we shouldn't fight that. The guy's awful. He's, he's a fascist. Yeah. He's a creeping fascist at the very least. He's got to go. Yeah. Um, but that's not going to fix everything. Democrats come in, then they own the stink of the system, and that's always good. <laughs> Own the stink of the system. Uh, They own it. They own the stink of the system that owns them. It's very educational when Democrats get in. Corporate Democrats get to pose 
as uh, a left opposition more effectively when they're out of nominal power than when they're in. When they're in, you can young people see that life still sucks in America. Uh, um, even though they've got a JFK or an LBJ in there, or even though they've got an Obama in there. And you get the new left, and you get the civil rights movement, and then under Obama you get Occupy, and you get Black Lives Matter, and all that kind of stuff. It's a very interesting dynamic. It is, and I think maybe we have something to learn from the Tea Party. They did local actions. They started, you know, they they were building from the grassroots up, which uh, I think we need to do. With some money from the Koch brothers, yeah. Well, that's true, too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was uh, faux populism for sure. Oh my goodness, they've they've manipulated it very well. You use the phrase "workers' rebellion." What what evidence do you see? What what do you mean by that? What evidence do you see of such a phenomenon, the workers' rebellion? Well, this increase in uh, public sector union activism, particularly around teachers, is really kind of impressive, and it's. It's not just, you notice know, you know, it's every one of these strikes. We had L.A., we had Chicago back under Obama. Uh, we've got L.A., there's going to be more. There was some of the, some of the state-level unions that went out. Um, and, and you notice that they're, that, that sort of by nature of, of their craft and what they do as public, as public school professionals, they're, involved, they're intimately involved in the community. They're making all kinds of community connections, mm-hmm. and that's really cool. Uh, I understand that some of the students are coming out, some of the parents are coming out, and that, that happened in L.A., it certainly happened in Chicago, it's going to be happening in Denver right now. Uh, that's really neat. Uh, I've never seen the kind of language like I saw recently from um, Sarah Nelson, who's the head of the flight attendants union, oh, who right. just a few days before the calling off of the yeah, uh, of the first shutdown, I don't know if we're going to get another shutdown, yeah. I'm thinking more likely an emergency declaration, but in any yeah. event, on the Sunday before, uh, uh, I don't know, was it a Wednesday, uh, um, uh, on which the air traffic controllers uh, exercised their workplace bargaining power by calling in and and jamming up the planes at LaGuardia, she actually gave a speech in which she called for a national general strike, you know? Um, That's new kind of language. You know, that's uh, that's pretty cool. There's uh, something amazing. going on. I I, um, I was at an event recently in Chicago held by Democratic Socialists of America. They had a community college instructor. They had three nurses. They had a folk music teacher, a teamster, a charter school teacher, and a federal government worker. And each one of them had these remarkable sort of untold stories. Howard Zinn wrote a chapter in one of his drafts of the People's History of the United States called The Unreported Resistance. And these are sort of examples of all these sort of bubbling up kind of strike. They were all reporting um, these sort of harrowing stories of their struggles to form unions, you know, and to win contracts from arrogant employers who treat their workers. And this is a quote from this uh, black woman from the south side of Chicago who is a uh, super exploited nurse at one of the leading private uh, health care providers in Chicago. She said, they treat us like commodities, right? Uh, the federal workers spoke about how the air traffic controllers um, forced Trump hands from the bottom up and helped awaken the sleeping giant of working power. I think we might see some of this again if they dare, if they dare to have another shutdown. People are organizing already uh, around support for uh, federal workers if they're thrown uh, out of their jobs or at least out of, right out of their paychecks. Again, and I'm already hearing discussions about support 
for the uh, TSA workers, support for the air traffic controllers, support for the uh, flight attendants, support for the pilots, uh, maybe even on the model of when people went out to the airports. Yes, uh, that was and, beautiful. Uh, and uh, and you know and and uh, and and protested the Muslim travel ban. Right, let's head out to the airports and support the air, the, the airport workers if there's another shutdown. But you know what? Let's not just stop uh, stop with that. Let's buy some yellow vests and uh, go yep. onto the highways and stop traffic. You know, if, the if, French the French working class the French people aren't waiting around for no. the, for the president for the French presidential election of 2022 to try and force change in their country. They already got a, a, a regressive tax uh, taken off just as street activism. We're not France. But, but geez, we need to be more like France than we could be. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? They, it's, it's a, yeah. they, they seem to get out on the streets, uh, you know, sort of on a regular well, basis. That's a national tradition, yeah. <laughs> and they're really powerful. And apparently uh, the, the majority of the population of France supports the Yellow Vest movement. And maybe, maybe when people see that these kind of direct actions actually achieve something, you know, it's it's kind of fun. It's no mistake that the that the yellow vest the Gilets are practically no, not practically. They are thoroughly blacklisted on American corporate media. I mean, it's an extraordinary true. Yeah, that's story, true. and it didn't go away in in November and January. It has continued. I mean, this is a major country with which the United States shares uh, a whole lot of Western history. It's really quite extraordinary. It sits on the uh, France has a person sitting on the on the United Nations Security Council. It's considered one of the great powers of the world. Oh, There's sure. an unbelievable story of mass working-class rebellion and direct action, yeah. and it's blacklisted uh, on, on a cable news that is just obsessed constantly with every latest Trump tweet, the Mueller investigation, <laughs> Trump, Mueller, Cohen, Trump, Mueller, Cohen, Stormy Manifold. Daniel, yeah. uh, Paul Manafort. All Trump all the time. Again and again, yeah. Yeah, but you're right. The the yellow vest movement. It's very very little coverage. And, you know, the New York Times does its uh, uh, necessary coverage, but that seems to be, you know, about it. They do as little as they have to do. What about you know? We talked about briefly prairie populism. Farmers, they voted for Donald Trump for the most part, and they've gotten screwed by Trump. I wonder if there's oh, yeah. p- potential there. The farmers, they're they're taking a hit with all the uh, the tariffs. And oh well, the trade war is a disaster for a lot of what you know. I, I've lived in I, I I have lived in Iowa for years and back in Chicago. Uh, you know, a lot of what what gets you know what, what gets called farmers is actually sort of corporate uh, oh, yeah. agribusiness. Yeah, agribusiness. But yeah, the yeah. Uh, the farm sector's taking a huge hit from this uh, nativist uh, China bashing and this and this trade act. And yeah, and, and you know and he released some money and tried to buy them off with that. I, I suspect uh, he's not going to get the kind of votes and money from uh, the agricultural sector in, in some of the states that matter, because we only have a presidential election in 15 states. I was one of them. Yeah. It's a contested state. Uh, he's going to lose some of those people there. He's also going to lose some of his um, more white, middle-class, middle-of-the-road types of backers who are waking up to the fact that they've lost a whole bunch of tax deductions. In this bill, in that tax bill, yes. you know, I mean, no, it benefits the one percent. That, that was populism, wasn't it? The, the, the uh, you know, an unimaginable upward distribution of wealth, a bill and a tax bill that's costing people their deductions on their uh, 
local under local and state taxes. Well, will they Excuse act? Me, that's a lot of money. Will the farmers act? Do you think now that they're getting screwed? Maybe they're realizing, hey, we did get screwed, and we talk about workers' rebellion. You know, the whole uh, Democrat farm labor movement that existed in the twentieth century was pretty powerful. And I wonder if you know. Well, I'd like to see that. There's not a whole heck of a lot. There's not as many farmers left around oh, as there used to be. That's a good you point. Know? Yeah. You should you know take yeah. a take a drive in the countryside and try and map yeah. out the land ownership patterns. A lot of those guys that used to do that. Uh, have long ago retired, and their kids have moved out of the agricultural sector, and uh, you know, and there's a corporate pig farm where the farm used to be. But yeah, some of those guys are still around. That'd be great. Yeah. Um, you know, and maybe, uh, you know, and maybe when the farm sector is taking a hit, that the the state farm bureaus are going to are going to give less money to and be less supportive of the. Uh, Trump phenomenon next time around, and that might at least create some opening space for uh, yeah, it's interesting when you, the other party to get in, which I say is always useful. It's useful for the Democrats to get in. I'm not Democrat. I'm left of the Democrats, but it's always yeah. useful for them to be in. Well, and, and uh, the, the, uh, the siphoning of money, you know, the uh, trickle up, uh, has, as you're right, you know, there aren't as many farmers, and uh, it takes away the power of the people. But they still, and I think, you know, the capital thing, idling the capital, if that can be done somehow. My dad used to talk about a general yeah. strike. He, he grew up in the uh, 20s and 30s, and, you know, a general strike as the most powerful thing. People don't, I, I mean, you never hear about a general strike. It's a... It's hard to pull off because, you know, unless you have huge numbers doing it, uh, a general strike is, you know, it, it fails. And it's a very powerful political action. Do you think there's any, I mean, you know, people would be out of work for a while. And uh, I, I just I just wonder if there's any possibility of that kind of thing happening, what it would take to stimulate that. Well, you know, um, you know, I think organization is required beyond the scale of what exists actually right now. But uh, uh, you know, it, it's really nice to hear Sarah Nelson talking that kind of way. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I, th- I think as time goes on, that this is developing the capacity to do something. Like that. You know, technically speaking, a general strike would sort of end up under labor law, be considered a a, uh, a sympathetic strike, which is technically illegal, insanely enough. It's technically illegal under U.S. labor law to strike in sympathy for uh, other workers. But um, I don't know if people got mad as hell uh, enough, if, uh, you know, uh, as time goes on. I, I think that um, we're probably not in a state to pull that off right now, though I think there could be some very significant direct action, as I said, particularly in support of airport and airport-related and air travel-related workers if they go back into another shutdown. I think that could happen. Um, I think there's probably an overdue financial correction coming within the next few years, and it's going to change all kinds of equations about what kind of society we're living in and who really has the power, because I don't think they have the juice that they had the last time to bail them, to bail the big financial institutions oh, out sure. of it. And I think people are, the Occupy went sort of up to the edge, up to the edge of the pool and looked in, but never once said, let's nationalize the top five financial institutions that own this country, right? Yeah, Citigroup, yeah, yeah. Uh, Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Stanley, and the rest. And I don't think they'll be able to avoid that next time. I think there's something very oh, significant about the power of the financial institution is coming up, and there's this ongoing, ever-deepening crisis of livable ecology as it becomes more and more evident that literally the planet is becoming uninhabitable and, uh, and, and that the elites with the, fin- with the five financial institutions in charge are turning the entire planet into a big green gas house chamber, and that's unsustainable. So I think 
all kinds of possibilities are going to open up. It's like I said, I talk to 18 to 29-year-olds, and they're wondering whether they even, even make sense for them to have kids anymore in this type of a world. Um, I think we're coming up against some real existential uh, tipping points. Let's have some dangers as well as some opportunities, and we're just going to have to realize that. And there used to be a middle class. When I was growing up, there really was a middle class. I know it's probably hard for the millennials to believe it was real, but it was real. And today, I think there's still the myth of a middle class. And, you know, unlike Europe, since the 1930s, there's been no sense of working class solidarity in America. What used to be a deep and wide middle class, at least for whites in the 50s, has been decimated. We, we got a new gilded age, tremendous economic injustice, just astounding. But I wonder if people are getting that. What, what is the potential of a growing awareness of economic injustice, do you think? Is that something that people are starting to get? Yeah, no, people are, are, are starting to get that. And, I, you know, college students now, unless they're, from, unless they're at the elite schools, unless they're at Stanford, at the Ivy schools, it's extraordinary. First of all, the tuition rates are just oh preposterous. God. It's yeah. just unimaginable what kids pay to go to college now. I'm old enough that I remember when you go to a state school and, like, you know, they have a full course load for, like, 800 bucks. That's over. I mean, it's in the tens of thousands. Oh, yes, so they're many working. tens. Mm -hmm. They're going to college and working at the same time. You know, it's just sort of this chaotic kind of existence. Uh, um, and then all in order to go into jobs that, are, that, that, that everybody knows are not going to be paid at the level that their parents were paid and that their grandparents were paid. Um, yeah, I think that opens up opportunities for, uh, for um, participation in electoral movements, but also in uh, elect, uh, extra electoral kinds of movements. And I think perhaps for a demand that we actually have an opposition party, a people's opposition party mm. in this country, a people's party, which we don't have right now. We don't have one. Um, we have a, um, we have, we have sort of two corporate parties, one yeah. of which is sort of essentially sort of become a creeping fascist party oh, yes. and run by an absolute lunatic and the other one that's using that lunatic to just create a narrative of all you got to do is get him out and get us back in and everything will be okay right. and we'll put the we'll put the adults back in charge and what does that mean Ooh, city yes. group goldman sachs council on foreign goldman sachs council on foreign relations uh the atlantic council and all those folks who are like really good at imperialism and yep. really good at, at corporatism they think yep. uh we'll get them in there that's fine. We do have to get rid of Trump. Get him in there. They'll own the stink of the system that owns them. It's always better for the Democrats to own the stink of the system that owns them. Let the financial system collapse under their, under their tutelage or under their or nominal power. And, uh, yeah, you'll see a lot of these kids, the ones that don't want to become fascists, a lot of these young people who reject the Trump ideology but, but realize that the inauthentic opposition party, as Sheldon Wolin once called the Democrats, is inadequate. It needs to be revealed exposed as inadequate to our needs uh, and to build something else. I think the there are some people right now trying to create the, move, the movement for a people's party. Uh, MPP is sort of is, is trying to build from the grassroots up towards that with an eye to 2024, with the knowledge that 2020 mm. is gone. It's a corporate election. We might as well just admit it. Trump is so awful. Every, everyone's on the bandwagon of getting rid of this vicious fascist lunatic. But after that, things can get very, very interesting. That's a good point. And I mean, I yeah. I may differ with you a little bit there that I, I mean, there's a tremendous party apparatus within the Democratic Party. And at the grassroots level, 
we are not the corporate Clinton level. There's, there is that tension. Taking over. Yeah. Quite possibly. And I think it's starting to happen. I, I don't know. But I think, it, you know, the mechanism is in place. And as one who always tries to read the writing on the wall, I worry that the new aggressiveness of congressional investigations could backfire if they're not successful in finding smoking guns on the Russia thing, whatever, would it not be likely that working people might be angry at Democrats and go to bat for Trumpism? You know, I, I don't I don't know about working people in general, but 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 the base the base could be sort of remobilized that part of the Trump base that is being kind of demobilized by things like getting their tax returns um, and finding out that they've lost deductions that they used to have, farmers who are pissed off because they're uh, having trouble marketing their soybeans in China thanks to Trump. You know, working class whites in Ohio who voted for Trump, not that many of them, but those who did, and then, you know, ended up losing their jobs, you know, for things related to the trade sanctions. Uh, and that they might be prone to sort of, yeah, supporting someone more left populist, and then, uh, yeah, and then it looks like the Democrats are overreaching. I think they're very attuned to that right now. I mm, think it's part so. of why they're uh, being very quiet about the impeachment word. You have some people in Congress, right. like Rashida Tlaib, you know, and others who come from really, you know, minority districts where the hatred of Trump is really strong, and they feel compelled to say stuff like, you know, we're going to impeach the, uh, you know, the mother, you know, and uh -huh. all of that. But, um, the establishment uh, 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 strategists uh, are worried about exactly what you're talking about. I don't know. The concern might be uh, the concern might be legitimate. Uh, impeachment actually helped Clinton uh, in the late 1990s. Oh, it, it, it helped him. It, it, he was he, he was stronger, you know. And and um, you know, if you get rid of him, you can actually remove him. That'd be one thing, but the Senate, the way our structure is, the Senate is apportioned. You can't. Yeah. You're not going to get two thirds vote there. And then if you did, you'd have a Christian fascist as the president named Mike Pence. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You can thank the founding fathers for that. That's how the Constitution is set up. I'm all for. By the way, no one ever talks about this. I'm all for us doing talking about what the Guillemins talk about in France, which is a constituent assembly to draft a new charter, so we could have a rational wow. political system, like like for example, so that we elected the president on the basis of the popular vote. Well, what a people are amazed that we don't do that, but we don't. <laughs> yeah, it's true. We don't really, for sure. If you just tuned in, Bert, and there's a presidential election in 15 states, tops, because of yeah. the electoral college system. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it is. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. We are keeping democracy live. It's a heavy lift. We need a lot of people participating. Our guest today, Paul Street, uh, independent progressive policy researcher, journalist, author, who's written a lot of books, seven books so far to date. We're talking about Beyond the 2020 Electoral Circus, which has begun, a workers' rebellion is brewing. You urge smart, patient, local organizing, and you say that working people don't have the time and energy to follow the bouncing ball of Russiagate or the latest presidential town hall in Des Moines, or Portsmouth for that matter. What examples do you see of working people getting involved successfully at the local level? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I'll just give you an example from Iowa City, which I was living sure. in for a few years and up till just recently, um, that there's a thing down there called the Worker Justice Center, uh -huh. um, which was formed initially to um, represent immigrant workers, which, believe it or not, out there in, out there in Breadbasket, Iowa, on the wrong side, not just of the uh, Hudson River, but of the Mississippi River, mm. uh, has... Um, 
uh, uh, global employers like Procter and Gamble, and has a global working class, including not just Latinos from Honduras and Mexico and Guatemala, but an increasingly a bunch of Sudanese and uh, and and Congolese and other people from Africa. It's really quite extraordinary, and they work in the factories and bakeries and various other uh, production states there. And the Worker Justice Center. Uh, a couple years ago, elected a working-class Sudanese woman to the city council, and she's a very strong advocate of an increased minimum wage uh, and a guaranteed minimum wage and, and, and other kinds of things. And at the same time, the Worker Justice Center there is all tied in and hooked in with uh, the, uh, a progressive local Teamster union there with AFSME, the American Federation of State County Municipal Employees, who uh, represent a lot of the university employees, many of whom are white. So you have this great location where white workers and Latino workers and actually African workers are getting together and forming livable wage campaigns and also strongly defending immigrant rights. And all over Iowa, when uh, in eastern Iowa, when ICE comes in yes. and uh, attacks uh, uh, undocumented workers, there is this remarkable infrastructure now that goes in to support them and provide them with legal support and help keep families together and help keep the uh, detained workers, get them out of jail and keep them in the United States and get them at least temporary legal status and then fighting for immigration reform and all that kind of stuff yeah, from a working exactly. class perspective. And that, that's just one example. I mean, that's, that's kind of... Uh, that that's kind of really neat kind of stuff, and there's a lot more of that, I think, than uh, than people know. Yeah, there is, and this whole sanctuary cities movement that's happening places. Lots of people realize, hey, you know, the immigrants aren't the problem. There is, I mean, it's it's there is no uh, emergency. Although I think he may declare that, and that may rile a lot of people up. Yeah, yeah, I think that it. might happen. But there are there are cases like Richmond, California. Yes, uh, which is a fairly decent sized city in California. You know that we're progressives and uh, connected with the, with the trade union movement and independent political organization basically took over the city council and 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 won the mayor's office. They won a solid majority. They got huge tax payments, hundreds of millions of dollars from Chevron. They got it to limit pollution. They raised the minimum wage to fifteen dollars an hour in the city. They took the money they got from Chevron to implement a bunch of green, you know, measures. And of course, they made Richmond an immigrant-friendly sanctuary city. Black leftists essentially got elected in and became uh, um, uh, the ruling force in Jackson, Mississippi, a few years wow. ago, um, and did all kinds of extraordinary things around sustainability and worker cooperatives and green production in this. In the, I think it's the capital city in the state of in the state of uh, Mississippi. You know, things like that actually happen. Working people can relate to that. They can relate to things that bring down rents and bring down property taxes and increase green spaces, you know, and, and uh, enhance wages and improve the quality of life in the communities they actually live. You know, meanwhile, Rachel Maddow, with her Ph.D. in political science from Oxford, is just, you know, stringing one prolonged sentence after another no. about the latest revelations on Manafort, oh, on no. Cohen, oh, no. on, um, you know, you know on, on the whole complex endless conspiracy narrative in connection with Russia. I'm, I'm agnostic about Russiagate. 
I, I, I am not completely opposed to the notion that Russia had some involvement in the 2016 election, and it, it may perhaps have had some relevance to its outcome. I don't know how much. I'm skeptical right. about that. Oh, me too. But people aren't. People don't have. People are dying out here. Yes. You know, in in the heartland from uh, from inadequate health and you know uh, uh, health and you know health uh, um, services and in insufficient wages. They're not sitting around following this, or you know, or 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 checking their smartphones every five seconds to see the latest thing that Kamala Harris or Beto O'Rourke or Liz Warren tweeted, you know, and yeah. whether Liz Warren's really a Cherokee or no, not. This no. is not a primary concern for ordinary working-class people. I'm sorry. And I think what's I, I, it's local. You know, what, what affects people's lives? Bernie Sanders connected with people because he was talking about what affects people's lives, their ability to get health care, their ability to, you know, pay for education. You got to touch people where they live. You know, it's local, local. And, and well, that's organizing 101. Yeah. And, and I believe success breeds success, that if people, local people, working class people who may not see themselves as working class, but if they see there's some success in making some political change, hey, it's kind of fun, <laughs> and it actually works. There's, there's nothing like success to breed success. Well, and, you know, elections where you've got a nice candidate and they say nice things and they lose because there really weren't in a winnable election in the first place. Right. That, happens that, that sucks. That ends up demobilizing people. They go, see, that was one of my concerns about the Bernie whole thing, as I knew that he was running in accord with majority progressive opinion, and he was, and he will be doing that again. Uh, but then we have these kind of fake sort of uh, 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 exercises in pseudo-democracy called these corporate-controlled elections, and they create the illusion that you don't have majority support because actually you get your head kicked in by the corporate sector, which controls the uh, the money and the media mm-hmm. and, the, and the party apparatus, obviously, in the case of Hillary Clinton in 2016. And they go, oh, we don't really have majority support when you really did. And sometimes I'm very leery of running campaigns when you can't win them because it feeds that mentality that we're really just a tiny minority in the things that we believe in when we're really not. So it's nice to pick out races sometimes. That you can actually that you can actually prevail in, right? Yes. Uh, and 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 um, and then you build out from absolutely. There. That's right. There's nothing wrong with getting someone in the city council, getting a state no. controller. How about an attorney general? You School know, boards, um, something like that, and 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 then build up and out from there with an awareness that this system is coming apart, and the and the big Democratic Party is inadequate. So is the Republican Party, of course. Too. Yeah. The whole party system is inadequate. Um, but we, but you have some successes to point to as you build for that bigger movement in response to that bigger crisis. Absolutely. And one of the things that you know people have been convinced, I, I think, it's, it was very smart of the powers that be to to work diligently to convince people that ah, we don't have power. Forget about it. Your action in the street doesn't do anything. It's of course not true. What about the power of direct action? What do we mean by direct action? Well, I think we talked about that earlier today. You know, it's uh, it's. Um, it, it isn't just about who's sitting in the offices. I mean, when you can actually shut down the operation of the business system, uh, as, frankly, the LaGuardia airport workers were starting to do, you start to see policy change real fast. Now, the French showed that. The French basically, uh, the French délégations basically paralyzed the country. Yes. Uh, in response to, That's not because they were against a, a green tax, but because they were against regressive taxation yeah. in order to address the climate issue. 
uh, in Europe. Yeah. And uh, wow, that's interesting. They didn't wait around to the 22, 2022, really? Sit around and wait to those five minutes in a French ballot box in 2022? No, they, they went right away. So I think that uh, what the airport workers did is just just, just one example. These, these teachers... Uh, yeah, uh, have LA, moral, uh, uh, they have a moral majority type of support behind them. people like their public school teachers. Okay, they, 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 and politicians can't afford to have everyone staying out of school because they're cheating the teachers. No, they're going to win. They're going to win true. in Denver. They won in L.A. They won in Chicago. They're not waiting around for yeah. an election. No, there's all kinds of stuff. Uh, there's all kinds of stuff that that, uh, that people can do. And of course, it's... mean elections. It isn't just about two minutes in a booth once right. every four years for crying out loud. What kind of democracy is that? <laughs> it's not. But luckily, you know, we're smart enough to be able to do more than one thing at once. You know, we can do this local organizing right. and also vote, you know, for president. And you mentioned Sherrod Brown is a longstanding union ally from the heartland. There's some good people there. Tulsi Gabbard. Uh, you know, there's no harm in working to elect them, but we just well, need to... Well, Gabbard has, has, has the guts to say things about foreign policy that, that even goodness. Bernie doesn't seem to want to say, that Bernie yeah, and Alexandria uh, Cortez are kind of reluctant to do. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true, but we can do both things at once, organize locally and uh, spend the two minutes in the vo- in the uh, voting booth as well. Yeah, well, it's two minutes. People, you know, on the left, That's people true. just rip each other to shreds about what they do or they don't do in, in, in this one moment that comes every four years. Yeah. And I understand all of the lot of the different positions about that. I understand the people who don't vote. I understand the people who vote third party. I also understand the people who do tactical voting. You yes. know, I'm sort of agnostic about all of that. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I've given my reasons why I'm generally a, a tact of a vote, support tactical voting in contested states, right. you know, where, where it actually matters in the presidential. But I don't demonize people for how they do that because it's just one part of politics. True. And this other part of politics that you and I have been talking about, the, the, the people in the streets and not just who's sitting in the suites, determines a lot of the other stuff, too. And so, like, like we were saying, Bernie could have got in there, but what could he have done without... Yeah. A real interest. It might have been premature without a real mm. built up, locally based, powerful grassroots movement that comes up from the bottom up. What do you, what, what, what's he going to be able to do? You know, FDR was able to do some of what he was able to do because there was an organized industrial yes. worker Absolutely. movement on the ground with the capacity to idle capital. That's true. If people want to follow your work, uh, anything on the internet to which you can point them? Well, I'm I'm a regular at Truth Dig, and I'm a regular at Counterpunch. Yes, uh, and great. I also have my own website, which is paulstreet.org. Both of those uh, journals, online journals, Truth Dig and Counterpunch, have author-specific links for me. All you got to do is click on my name, look for an article by me, click on my name, and you'll see everything I've done with both of them. But I compile all of my essays, and I put up my books at www.paulstreet.org. Thank you so much. Fascinating stuff, and uh, let's continue the energy. Look forward to speaking to you again sometime. Thank you. Okay. Super. Bye-bye.